Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. All right. So this episode is going to be the second half of the issues that were published with a cover date of November 1963 for Marvel Comics Group, uh, or the superhero comics, at least, for that month. There's one war comic and some westerns and some, uh, I don't know, they're not really romance, but like girl-focused books that we're not focusing on right now. But it's going to be Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, X-Men and Avengers, I believe. I feel bad about how these are splitting up. I really regretted with our last two episodes, or not our last two episodes, the episodes before the last episode, where... You know, we split up the books and I really wish we'd split it up so that we had X-Men number one and Avengers number one as their own episode. And instead, that episode began with a uh, Ant-Man Tales to Astonish story. And I'm like, I think that a lot of people who haven't been listening to this podcast might have jumped in and listened to that episode. If that episode had been like, hey, here's an episode just on Avengers number one, X-Men number one. I haven't been listening to this podcast. I might want to jump in and listen to that episode. But instead, we're like, wait, wait, wait. First, we're going to talk about Ant-Man. I was the one editing that episode, and I really should have cut it up differently, but I didn't. And you were right, and I was wrong, and I will stand here in my wrongness and be wrong. And I feel like I feel like we lost some potential hop-ons to the podcast of people who are like, oh, I don't want to hear about Ant-Man. So I don't know if this is it's best to begin this episode with Iron Man, but we're going to do it. Let's begin with Iron Man. <laughs> we will keep on making the same bad mistakes. We have the Melter, who is introduced on the cover. Uh, special super issue, Lee, Ditko, and Heck team up to bring you Iron Man. Greater, more true to life than ever as he battles the mysterious Melter, an 18-page epic. I forget. We've seen, I think, Kirby's name mentioned on a cover before this, I think. I don't think we've seen them bragging about Dicko on a cover before. Or Lee. Or Heck. <laughs> well, they've certainly never bragged about Heck. But, uh, I feel like they've bragged about Lee and Kirby on a cover before, have they? I feel like we've seen like the, them I'm saying it's sure. going to be an amazing Lee-Kirby comic or something like that. I'm not sure. Oh, and by the way, with uh, Ditko doing this, one thing that I meant to mention in a previous episode is the issue where Pepper and Happy are introduced. The cover on that issue looks to me like it was penciled by Ditko. Ah. This is Ditko, perhaps for the first time, perhaps returning after moonlighting on a cover earlier as artist here. Now, Heck is the inker, and he inks him with a very heavy hand. Yeah, if it... Did not say this was penciled by Dicko. I would not know. If you just told me this book was penciled and inked by Don Heck, I would believe you. There's one particular panel where I would look at that and I'd be like, no, that has to have been Ditko. But you know, for the most part, that's it. So I noticed they don't say penciled and inked by. Now, sometimes in the credits, that can just be them being sort of cutesy about how they're introducing everybody. But sometimes these things mean something. If you ever see the penciler listed as doing either layouts or breakdowns, that means they're doing very, very basic work artistically. They're just basically figuring out how to break up the story and sort of where the characters are going to be and what's going on, but leaving all of the actual art, the execution of that to somebody else who is often called a finisher. And the fact they don't say penciler and anchor, but they say interpreted by Steve Ditko, refined by Don Heck, makes me wonder if, oh, and uh, sorry, I meant to mention also, 
uh, the whole thing about layouts or breakdowns. And I don't know if there's a difference between those two. I don't think there is. I think they're synonyms. And embellishing is a pay rate difference, uh, or at least was when I was working in the business. You would get paid less for breakdowns or layouts than you would for full pencils, and you would get paid more for embellishments than you would for inks. So uh, I never did that. Yeah. So the fact that it says down here, written by Stan Lee, interpreted by Steve Ditko, refined by Don Heck, I'm betting that they were doing the whole layouts and embellishment on this. Uh, and that might be a reason they were getting cutesy with the credits. Down so, there, but. And then I wonder, like, OK, it doesn't seem like they're bringing in Ditko to bring the Ditko amazing Ditko-ness into this book. And I'm like, oh, is this the case where, you know, we're really making the pencilers plot these things and Heck isn't doing a good job plotting. So we'll bring in Ditko because we know Ditko is a good plotter. But the problem with that theory is that this issue does not have a good plot. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. And the villain is pretty lackluster and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Before you begin, I think this issue is just totally dreadful. We've got a lot of derivative (laughs) books this month. The Doctor Strange story was derivative of previous Doctor Strange stories. The Ant-Man story is going to be very derivative of previous Ant-Man stories. But there has never been a Marvel comic as derivative as this comic is. This is just a complete rerun of the Crimson Dynamo from, was that last Yeah, it's just the previous issue. (laughs) There's the previous issue with the Crimson Dynamo. We've got, once again, Saboteur destroying all of Tony's factories. And once again, Congress is blaming Tony for it and threatening to take away all his funding. And it's like, oh, dear God, this is just on autopilot. This is no good. Yeah, but you see, that was a Russian scientist who was doing it. This is an American disgruntled scientist who's doing it. So, Oh, never mind. <laughs> so there are mysterious things breaking and going wrong with the equipment that Stark is sending to the U.S. government, and they're starting to lose faith in him. By the way, on page two, panel two, that military officer who is seeing how badly this stuff is falling apart, that could be our first glimpse of Colonel Glenn Talbot. Yes, who, it does look exactly like Colonel Glenn Talbot, doesn't it? And Steve Ditko is the one who introduced the character Glenn Talbot. Ahaha. Uh-huh. Yes. So I'm, I'm wondering if this might be our first unnamed glimpse of Glenn Talbot. I think right. that as a result of this podcast, prices for this issue are going to skyrocket <laughs> because they're going to decide this is the secret first appearance of Glenn Talbot and all the Glenn Talbot collectors are going to rush to buy this. Really? Can it go any further north than it already has because it's the first appearance of the Melter? I mean, True. come on. His stuff seems to be subpar, seems to be falling apart when it gets to the government. Tony starts trying to figure out what's going on. He gets waylaid by this guy in a really, truly garish and dreadful outfit. This yeah, green, awful. blue, brown. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's really just a, an assault on the eyes. I feel like this is true of a lot of these Iron Man villains, especially. Man, maybe this is Hex's fault. Is that a lot of these Iron Man villains, they're later say. Well, we can keep the signature element of that guy's costume, but everything else has got to go. So the melter will eventually come up with a completely different costume except for the melting element. And I feel like that same thing happens with the unicorn. I feel like the same thing happens. Well, it certainly happens with Crimson Dynamo. The Crimson Dynamo gets a completely different set of armor. I feel like all of these early versions of the villains in Iron Man are just too lame to live and we'll have to redesign them later. So we see a flashback. This guy who becomes the melter was another industrialist selling stuff to the Defense Department. Tony Stark is the one who figures out, who's able to show the government that the stuff this guy is making for them is subpar. And so his contracts get canceled and he is disgruntled. He then accidentally stumbles upon this invention for something that can instantly destroy iron. 
or melt iron in some way. It doesn't seem to be heat-based. It seems to just sort of make it dissolve. Meanwhile, bottom of page three, panel five, uh, is one of the few places where you can sort of see a little bit of Ditko showing through. There. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. So then he now has a grudge against Tony Stark. So that's what we see in the flashback. So now it comes forward and we're like, oh, well, that's why he just knocked out Tony Stark. So then we get some witty banter going back and well, kind of witty. We get some <laughs> we get some some banter of one sort or another back and forth between Happy and Pepper. Uh, and then they see Tony Stark drag himself into the office after having been knocked out by the melter. And they're like, oh, man, let's call you a doctor. He's like, no, no, no doctor, no doctor. Just close this door and don't open it. So then to he be fair, that is the in. entire reason that Happy was hired when Happy was just a random True. boxer who saved him before. And he's like, hey, you look like the kind of person who won't call a doctor when he should call a doctor and will instead just <laughs> allow me to plug myself in someplace. And Happy's like, sure, mister, that's my that's that's me all over. And that's, it's like, going, you're hired. That, that's a good point. Then meanwhile, the melter is uh, somehow still sneaking around the factory and going and presumably melting stuff. Tony Stark sees this uh, after he's been charging up for a little bit and puts on the rest of his armor and heads out. (laughs) We're told that he's got a soundproof tunnel underneath his building so that he can go clump, 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 clump in his heavy iron armor and make it from one location to another without anyone hearing him, which I don't think we ever hear about that again. Never say that, Steve. Uh, So then we see the Melter destroying some of the factory equipment. Iron Man confronts him. First, he's like, oh, well, good. He's no longer destroying the equipment because he's turning towards me. But then it makes the left arm of his armor just dissolve away. So then you just see his bare arm uh, underneath there. So he escapes. And let's see, is that right? He turns his transistor energy activators to full power. (laughs) And then the mighty mystery man crashes desperately through the thickly insulated power plant wall. So he's able to get away from the melter for the time being. He then goes and does something with transistorized magnets to then burst open a (laughs) pipe. And it's just like the ultimate, the ultimate Stanley invention, transistorized magnets. It's, you know, every now and then you can tell that Stanley opens up an issue of like, you know, Scientific American or something like that and actually like looks up what something does. Somehow with all of that, he never once did it for transistors. No, nor magnets. (laughs) Well, nor magnets. But then uh, no one knows how magnets work. (laughs) Certainly not the insane clan posse. Yes, he bursts open a steam pipe and then is able to use that as cover to get away so that he isn't further melted. Uh, He then comes back as Tony Stark, looks at the damage uh, and then tells everybody, look, I've got to go into my office. Nobody interrupt me for any reason. They're like, but there's all the stuff we need you to do. He's like, nope, nothing. So he goes in there and needs to figure out a way to defeat the Melter. We don't really see what he does, but he is coming up with a plan. Meanwhile, a uh, starlet is coming in for her date with Tony Stark. And it's like, no one stands up the most famous name in Hollywood. And Pepper Potts is thinking to herself, man, wouldn't I like to pinch hit in that league? No, no, no. (laughs) That's happy thinking that. Happy is saying. Yeah. See, I, I I thought that was her saying that about wanting to be in the starlet's shoes like yeah, wanting to she be wants to pitch for, for the starlet no this is happy thing he wants to ah, pitch okay. it for tony tony is not stepping up to bat so then happy wants to pinch hit and i love her i love the movie star this is my favorite visual element in this visually unspectacular issue is this wonderful movie star who is of course wearing a cape as all great movie stars do her name is miss glitter 
and she looks fantastic. <laughs> okay, that, that actually makes a little bit more sense for that to be his phrasing of this. I mean, I'm sure she was probably thinking something along the same lines regarding Tony Stark. But I talk about it in my books how characters should have metaphor families, and he has a sports metaphor family in his there you go. in his sports metaphor family, he says, wouldn't I like to pinch it in that league? Very good. Then the next morning, he comes out of his office and finds Pepper and Happy there, and he's like, oh, well, this is early for you two to be here. They're like, we never left, sir. We figured you might need something. So they're very loyal employees. Pepper tells him that he's got to go to Washington for some kind of congressional hearing. He says, all right, well, I'll head down there, and Happy's like, okay, which car should I get? He's like, nah. I'm not going to take a car. What? Uh, I'm not going to explain. Just uh, I'll get there some other way. <laughs> so then. But then he does take a car because well, he's just a dick. Well, <laughs> no, but he has to get there faster first. So he does his rocket roller skates, which are apparently faster than driving a car real fast. And it always looks just so awkward to me when he's just standing up and it's just sort of standing position. And it's just like. You're going to hit a pebble at some point here, and you are just going to go tumbling end over end. <laughs> this just can't be the best way to travel. And then he, uh, when he gets close to D.C., he then jets up into the sky and lands at some sort of safe house that he keeps in D.C., uh, where he has changes of clothes and apparently some super space-age car that he's got. It looks really unnecessarily ridiculously uh, space-age there. So then here he is with, and again, I presume this is the not yet named Senator Byrd. Once again, not the one-time KKK member, Senator Robert Byrd, who later uh, renounced that, fortunately, from West Virginia. This is some other fictional Senator Byrd. So then when this when this character, a version- And West Virginia to- never had an embarrassing Democratic <laughs> senator again. <laughs> Yeah. So um, when a version of this character shows up in the MCU, they, of course, have to give him a different name because they can't have him be Senator Bird because then that would be like, wait, what? Who, what is this supposed to be? And he's played by Gary Shandling yes. <laughs> in the movies. So after getting grilled by the senators and being told that essentially he is about to lose his contracts because uh, he just can't deliver what he's supposed to deliver because of all the sabotage. Tony Stark is able to make it back to Flushing Queens in that same day. He's looking over some of the destroyed stuff, trying to figure out what to do. He then goes ahead and gets back into his armor and is ready for the melter when he next shows up. The melter comes and tries to melt him, and he doesn't melt. Now, one thing I will point out is on page 14, panel one. I don't know what's going on at that panel, but it looks like somebody came back, somebody who isn't an artist came back and re-inked part of it with a Sharpie. So the melter is trying to melt him and he doesn't melt. It then later turns out that he had made himself another suit of armor that is actually aluminum. And, you know, if you can make an armor that actually acts like an Iron Man armor that's made out of aluminum and somehow hardened it that much, aluminum's much, much lighter than iron. You would think that that would really be the way to go. Actually, what he really needs is titanium. He says, unknown to anyone, I redesigned my armor, making it entirely out of tough extruded aluminum. I don't know what extruded aluminum is. So when it comes to things like that, you can either have extruded or cast. So cast means you've actually got a mold and you fill it with the liquid version of the thing and then it hardens in the mold and then it's that thing. And then uh, extruded means you've essentially got like a lump of the material and then you've got some heavy rollers that are rolling through and extruding okay. out something of and they they tend to have different properties when you do that. There is also rot for iron 
stuff like that. So raw yeah, iron. Well, in the in the movies, at one point they're like, "Oh, you're like an Iron Man. You've got this iron suit." And he says, "No, it's actually titanium." So right, right, it yeah, is titanium, titanium in the movies. Titanium makes a lot more sense for all this stuff. It's like as light as aluminum, but stronger, but slightly stronger than steel and holds it better to uh, pressure and heat. Uh, Meanwhile, on page 16, panel three, that's one of those few panels where I'm like, if you'd show me that panel, I'd say, oh, that's absolutely Steve Ditko. There's no way that one's not Steve Ditko. But that's like the only panel where it's unequivocally that way here. We do have the melter melting the ground underneath Iron Man. And then the thing you talk about, just a character who can fly always flying or not he says you're cracking up my friend have you forgotten about my transistor powered jets which enable me to counteract the force of gravity the melter eventually ends up you know realizing he can't defeat iron man because he won't melt so he gets down into the sewer this is uh, this is another thing where it doesn't look like ditko but you know ditko did this just because ditko loves dank dark sewers with water dripping everywhere (laughs) <laughs> he does. So the melter makes it through into the sewer and escapes. Uh, as you say, a lot of people just escaping this month. That's when we see Tony Stark saying that he made his new armor out of aluminum and tough extruded aluminum. And then we have a little bit of banter at the end. And uh, that's it. Now, this would have been a perfect opportunity for them to redesign Iron Man's armor as part of this whole issue. But oddly enough, that will happen next issue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which seems a little bit odd. It's like you you got it set up right there. Just make it happen. Yeah. So um, not not a great issue. A Just lame so villain. Lame. Drawn. Just yeah. a complete rehash of the previous issue. Another disgruntled scientist, another disgruntled, you know, defense industry scientist like the porcupine and like many others. Uh, another attempt to wreck all of Tony Stark's factories and congressmen turning on him. Happy and Pepper are fun. They are the best element of this issue. I like their banter. Yes. They are likable characters, but uh, just a dreadful issue. And no wonderful Dicko qualities to the art, no wonderful Dicko qualities to the plotting. It's a, a waste of a visit from the great Steve. Yes, although he will be around for another two issues and he will leave an indelible mark on the character. Yes. So, Tales to Astonish next? Yes, let's go and do Tales to Astonish. Okay, so this is a huge issue. They they are no, I see what you this. did there. It's giant oh, as a matter of Yes, it's a giant issue, one might even say. So, it's like they just can't quit this book. They know the book isn't working, and they know that it's not setting the world on fire, but they're like, there's got to be a way to make this work. we got to keep changing it. So, first, they added the wasp, and they gave him a whole origin, when which his ex-wife said, go to the ants, thou sluggard. They tried to revivify the book that way, and now they are taking an even bigger step. The name of the book is Tales to Astonish, not Ant Man, so that means they can just change the hero's name. Beginning, I was about to say, beginning in this super special issue. No, it's beginning in this special super issue. Ant-Man becomes Giant-Man. It kind of works. I think it makes more sense to have one tricky hero and one growy hero. It's a little hard on the artist to have to (laughs) work them both into the same panel. But rather than just having two shrinky heroes, having one growy hero and one shrinky hero is clever. It certainly makes sense that he would be able to grow, given that he has been using growing potion this whole time. And 
there's a long story history of giant heroes in comics. I think this works. Do you think this works? Well, yes and no. I think that it works in that, you know, they very much introduce the concept, if not the actual term of the master of many sizes, which they sometimes apply to him later. <laughs> you know, he can be very big, he can be very small, but then also they've got different formulations of his uh, shrinking and growing stuff, which becomes a pill in this one, which I don't know if that's necessarily an improvement, but I think it allows yeah, him. I thought to- gas, I mean, originally it was a liquid he had to bathe in, and right. then they changed it to a gas. And then they each had little gas canisters on their belts. And now suddenly it's pills. And I think that's like, first of all, we all know that pills take a while to work. You know, pills are not (laughs) an instantaneous thing you put in your body the way a gas would be. And it's just it's just unpleasant to have all this pill popping going on. Like I I miss the gas. I don't understand why they had to change well, that. So I think the thought behind that was that now he can portion it out much more precisely to get to a specific size. That's what I took it to be. So yeah, I like having Giant Man, the zaniness of the original Ant-Man stuff can only last so long. It kind of run its course. The stuff had just gotten a little bit rote and silly at this point. I mean, I guess it was always silly, but it was was no longer deliriously zany. It was now just sort of like, ah, this is sort of habit. So getting him into something else, a giant character makes a lot of sense. The problem with this is that he continues his relationship with the ants. And so I'm guessing that's why he has the two like antennae that come out of his mask. Yeah. Once again, the theme gets very muddled and you don't really know what to call him and whether he's going to be needing to go giant size or ant size this issue. And it muddies the theme a little bit. uh, I think the biggest mistake they make is they the name Giant Man. I feel like because he shrinks a lot in this issue and he's not Giant Man. He's Shrinky Growy Man. He's <laughs> Size Man. He's Mass Man. I have never been able to come up with a good name for him. Now, later when Scott Lang's daughter becomes a character that both shrinks and grows, she is called Stature, which is not a terrible name for a Shrinky Growy person. I feel like they should have given him a name like Stature that made it clear he could shrink or grow. And, but you're right. It is strange to still have, you know, this person who is usually a giant man who also can control ants, which is strange. <laughs> but so then on the cover, we not only are introduced to giant man, we are also introduced to, I think, one of the coolest looking, not necessarily that he looks cool, but his power looks so cool. And uh, the reason I am a fan of this issue, it says featuring the super menace of the living eraser. And we get this guy who has the ability to swipe his hands. He's an alien, green bug-eyed alien, who has the ability to swipe his hands and erase parts of you as if you had just been erased with an eraser. And I love the look of this guy's powers. It is very Silver Age. Yes. This is, this, the visuals on this feel to me very much like we were talking about Marvel Phase 1. Yes. You know, the very first Lee Kirby issues before we really branched out into anything else. This feels very much like that, but it's sort of like a nostalgic kind of throwback sort of thing to that. And I at first I was like, "Eh, I don't know if it really works for me, but I actually kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, Yeah. I just love the look of the living eraser. I love Also, one thing I just noticed is that this cover actually is signed by Don Heck. Yeah, I had not. It's funny. I had not seen that as when the insides by Kirby, but yeah, the cover. Yeah, very rare you see signatures on covers, and uh, odd that yeah. they would have Hector the cover when they've got Kirby on the inside. Indeed, since Lee is almost always just if he can get Kirby to do a cover, that's what he. That's what he gets. I'm sorry. Yeah. Come on, Hank Pym has grown so big he's wrecked his house. A gardener going by is sort of horrified to see this and runs to get the police. That he's like, that was the only time I'll ever go more than ten feet. That was too big. 
I'm going to stick to 10 feet, uh, or I guess 12 feet. This capsule should increase my height to exactly 12 feet. Then we get to one of the most bizarre things. They Five minutes later at a local park. So they, I don't know if they've established before, but Hank and Jan live in Palisades, New Jersey. I guess because Lee is always looking for places that are New York adjacent, but you can have houses. So he has Spider-Man living in Forest Hills, Queen, which is, is one of the closest places to Manhattan where you can have a house. And now he's got Hank and Chan living in Palisades, New Jersey, which is one of the closest places you can live to New York and still have a house. Five minutes later, at a local park, you've got the police are looking for the... This is confusing. Are the police looking for giant? <laughs> There's a giant wrecking... Fan out, oh, okay. guys. Oh. This is where the eraser was last sighted. Okay, I'm sorry. Right. So the cops ignore this gardener who says, you got to deal with this giant guy because they're like, we're too busy dealing with the eraser. So then it says cut to a local park. So this is presumably a park in Palisades, New Jersey. And come to think of it, I guess when one thinks of Palisades, New Jersey, one thinks of Palisades Park. One thinks of an amusement park, which kind of make make the sense make a little more sense if this is supposed to be an amusement park. But it sure doesn't look like an amusement park. And it turns out in the park, there is a man walking around with a little cap and a little tray of hot dogs that say hot dogs, 15 cents on it. And it just looks like this is just a city park in which this guy is walking around (laughs) as if at a ballpark selling hot dogs. It is the strangest thing. But then the man gets erased. The eraser comes up and erases him. And I think it looks so cool. Then the eraser goes and erases the scientist. Turns out he is tracking down renowned atomics geniuses and erasing them. And then we get to the big problem with this issue, which is it is very derivative of an earlier Tales to Astonish issue in which... Issue 41. I went and looked it up because I was like, wait, didn't we do this exact story? Yes. <laughs> and it was we issue already had 41. the alien race that was kidnapping great scientists and taking them to work on their own uh, stuff. And indeed, once again, they show up, the eraser shows up, he erases Hank Pym, he arrives in the bug-eyed alien dimension where they explain that, oh, we saw that you guys had invented atomic power, we decided to kidnap your scientists. But the wasp is there, and she has figured out how to tag along and save Hank. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't she a wonderful person? Well, (laughs) Hank's reaction is to say, for Pete's sake, stop yapping. And he thinks to himself, (laughs) one billion females in the world, and I had to pick that exquisite empty head for a partner. So, Hank Pym, don't date him, girl. Don't. (laughs) He's not that into you. (laughs) He's just not that into you. He thinks you are an exquisite empty head. You guys should not be together, which, to be fair, is still Hank's position. Hank is still like. This is true. Hank is just like, she is my partner. She is an exquisite empty head. I would never date her. And Jan is the one who wants to get together, which she will regret. So then they escape. They rescue the scientists, just like in that previous issue. We then get some fun giant stuff where he pops his pill. He fights them in giant size in various cool ways. They've got some fun Kirby weapons, which he defeats. He's like, at one point, he grows giant and is climbing up balconies like giants can do and has a whole, like, being on top of a building like King Kong bit that's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, so really even, sort even of, the previous thing where he's climbing off of the balconies seems to be part of the whole King Kong thing. So there yeah. he's scaling the building, and then he gets to the top, and there are the flying machines that he's that he's fighting up there. Yeah. They're really leaning into the whole, okay, so he's giant now, let's have fun with that, which is a lot of fun. They eventually defeat the bad guys and seal the erasing device and erase themselves back to our reality. The end. So I think that they've made another bold move here. They've changed him into Giant Man, which I think works. I think it's a good idea. I love the look of the living eraser. I think he justifies this issue's whole storyline, which is completely barred from a previous issue. 
it was very nice to have Kirby back in the book and get some gorgeous Kirby images of exotic worlds, which he's always good at doing. Ultimately, a good issue and a necessary issue in the development of this character. All right. Well, looking back at my notes, one thing that I realized I forgot to bring up as we were going through that is at one point when Jan is taking orders from Hank and she seems to be sort of doing this playing around thing, like uh, almost like she's Genie and I dream of Genie. Jan refers to Hank as Bawana, B apostrophe W-A-N-A, which of course I had to look up. And it's one of these things that I guess was popular in not aged very well adventure movies from the time where I think it's Swahili for like, yes, person who's superior to me. She she refers to him as Bwana. And then in the next panel, well, Lord DC, and Master. DC had a character named Bwana Beast. Ah, okay. That's much worse. Yes. Who was, he was a <laughs> white person in Africa. And then eventually Grant Morrison revived the character and turned him into a black African. So yes, she calls him Bwana. He calls her at one point, pretty little pest. Yes. Oh, what a healthy relationship they have. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, they're, they're really going places. All right. So now we've just got X-Men and then Avengers, right? X-Men and then Avengers. Both X-Men and Avengers, I will say, were both top of mind for me when I was expounding on my belief that most early Silver Age Marvel second issues were generally pretty bad. And I was thinking of both Avengers number two and X-Men number two in that. X-Men number two, I will still stand by that. Avengers number two, I have somewhat revised my opinion after this read-through, but we'll talk about that. Really? Um, I I like X-Men number two more than Avengers number two, but they both have truly lame villains. Yes, yes. They both have really terrible villains. Well, well let's just go do X-Men, and then I'll comment uh, about Avengers when we get to that. In this issue of X-Men, a lot of what we get, especially in the first half of the issue is a lot of stuff just sort of giving Kirby the room to demonstrate how their powers work and what they can do with them and how that plays into their characters. Well, let's let's first point out that this is written by Stanley, drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Paul Reinman, who is just getting better yes. and better. I think it's yeah. nice inking by Paul Reinman. As I've said before, he is my favorite pre-Synot Kirby inker. Uh, yeah, I don't like him as much as Ayers, but I think it's it's some good yeah. stuff. I know, you keep on saying that, but I wouldn't say it out loud if I were you. Uh, <laughs> so, Ayers is great. Ayers is a fantastic inker. I really like Ayers as a penciler. I'm not a big fan of him as an inker. So on the splash page, the X-Men are all rushing very quickly to get to Professor X, who's summoning them. Uh, and they all look like they're rushing very quickly, except for Jean Grey, who looks like she's doing the Watusi or something. I'm not <laughs> quite sure what's going on there. She does not look like she's running or anything. So apparently it looks like the X-Men are all in costume with their masks in New York City at this point, And then they need to get out to Westchester. Yeah, what on earth is going on? They have often summoned to, you know, they're all students in Westchester and they're all being summoned by the professor, which shouldn't be a big deal, but they all seem to be in costume in New York City. And so they've all got to make it way the hell out to the suburbs. And what were they all doing? Were they all seeing My Fair Lady in costume in New York? Were they all were they all visiting Manhattan for some reason? It's very unclear. I think this just all goes down to Jack Kirby wanted to have a sequence where he showed them using their powers to do something. So he's like, okay, well, I need to just have them in point X 
and they're trying to get to point Y. That, that's what I'm guessing is going on here. There is no more thought to what the backstory was than just that. Yeah. And, you know, we, we do get some really nice explorations of what can go on. You know, as I've said, I've often been a little confused by what the beast's actual powers were. And we do get to see a little bit of it here that, you know, he can climb, he can kind of climb walls. He can leap and jump and do all sorts of uh, acrobatic stuff. We see the angel's superpower apparently is getting mobbed by teenage groupies. <laughs> and uh, we, we learned that uh, Marvel Girl shouldn't lift anything heavier than what she could carry as an actual human being, because then that will tire her out. And indeed, she does strand all of these uh, angel groupies up on top of the marquee for a movie. And then but then she gets faint because she overextended herself. We see um, Cyclops save some construction workers from a falling brick wall. Then he and Iceman end up getting back to Westchester by hijacking an ice cream truck or something like that. I'm like, I'm not quite sure why Iceman needs to be in an ice cream truck, but one way or the other. They get to the school. Professor X has summoned them there and then mentally projects onto a screen. (laughs) It's like, would he have to have a screen? Couldn't he just put it directly into people's brains? But he's mentally projecting information about this new villain that they need to take care of called the Vanisher. Uh, Now, the Vanisher visually, I don't know what is going on with him. What is going on with this guy visually? What is the concept of this character visually? He is wearing one of the weirdest outfits, and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with vanishing. If this had been exactly how they had drawn the Cobra, I would have bought it. Yeah, this is in some ways more of a Cobra outfit than the actual Cobra. Yes. You know, it almost looks like he had two different designs that he pitched to stand for the for this Cobra. And he's like, oh, you didn't like for the Cobra? Fine. It's going to be the Vanisher. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he says, you know, I'm not sure if he's a mutant, but I suspect he is. And so we need to go take care of him. Professor X is talking about him going and stealing money from a bank and just being able to disappear. Iceman then just starts bragging about what he's going to do to the guy and just start shooting ice balls like indiscriminately around the room and everybody has to duck and cover. Marvel Girl then redirects them telekinetically back at him. Then he makes an ice shield. And, you know, so once again, we're just seeing lots of stuff about how people are using their powers. We then see more of the beast powers. He escapes out of a. Now, I gotta say, nobody else does this. The Fantastic Four, Reed Richards is not constantly assaulting the other members of the Fantastic Four with robots and saying, no, you didn't move fast enough. Now this robot's gonna kick your ass. The Avengers are not doing this to each other. Nobody else does this. And this has always been a huge part of the X Men. It's like, now, my X Men, I will beat you up by using various robotic things in this room. And you will have to try out your powers. I guess the closest thing we get is Johnny constantly flying around yeah. obstacle courses in Strange Tales. But what a dick. Just <laughs> Professor X. <laughs> Professor X is just a tremendous dick to his students. He's like, oh, you know, we've got a few seconds, even though we don't have a few seconds here. We've got a menace to go fight. But uh, let's go ahead and take some time to beat you up a little bit first. Yeah. Professor X is uh, he's, he's kind of the worst. Well, I don't know. There are lots of people who are the worst, so I guess they can't all be the worst, but he's uh, he's up there. Then we see more of the Vanisher showing up in Washington, D.C., telling some folks in the Defense Department or in the Pentagon, I think it is, that he is planning to steal their continental defense plans. But he's not going to do it right now because he's just so confident in his powers that he's just going to let them know hey, worry about this for a few days. I'm going to show back up and take it. There's nothing you can do to stop me. And then he just disappears. 
Meanwhile, this makes him celebrity number one among the underworld. And so basically he gets himself a whole army of henchmen who want to serve him. And he is treating them all terribly because they are all homo sapiens while he is homo superior. Uh, But they'll take it because they're like, hey, man, you're the king of crime here. So uh, as long as we can be here, then, yeah, you can call us whatever you want. So we go back to more training and Jean Grey is trying to hold up a large thing, which clearly is breaking the same rules we've been told earlier about what she can and cannot hold up. Well, yeah, I mean, like they've said before, oh, Jean, you're about to faint because you're trying to lift something heavier than you. And so Professor X is like, okay, even though we've got a villain to go fight, Jean, I want you to now lift something heavier than you above your head so that it will fall and smash you. Well, yeah, now, I was going to say, granted, it's like strength training. I mean, she needs to build up somehow. But yes, it doesn't need to be directly over her to where it'll crush her. Cyclops uses his power blast to knock it out of the way and to save her. Meanwhile, uh, she is referred to as gorgeous at least twice in this issue. And I thought this page was one of them. But I know both Angel and Cyclops call her gorgeous as a nickname at one point or another. I thought it was here. Yeah. We then have Professor X communicating mentally with one of his government contacts. This is something that will sort of be referred to occasionally over the years, but it doesn't really make much sense with how they end up writing the X-Men in future years. But they sort of have this thing that writers will refer back to at various points. He's got a connection inside the Pentagon who has some sort of uh, mental headband thing that allows him to communicate long distance with uh, Professor X mentally. And they are talking about this stuff going on with the Vanisher. Professor X has them go down to Washington, D.C. They're going to have a series of flying vehicles over the years that will range from utterly lame to the best air transportation that any comic book characters have ever had. So they have a huge wide range. This is sort of in the middle. (laughs) A weird, weird looking, weird looking helicopter sort of thing. They take this down to D.C. Meanwhile, you've got these continental defense plans are just in a satchel that is on a table and you've got uh, government agents surrounding it with automatic weapons, just like, you know, no one can get past us. It's it's right here. And then Vanisher just shows up right in between all of them, picks the thing up and then disappears. But apparently he can't vanish very far away because he materializes in the hallway right outside uh, and people try to tackle him again. And then he just does the same thing, shows up out on the outside steps of the government building and the X-Men are there to confront him. So then we have a whole big thing where the uh, the suitcase is being taken and stolen and knocked out of people's hands. A big, interesting fight scene between all of these. The X-Men lose. They do not get the satchel back. The newspaper headlines are talking about how the X-Men have failed and people are talking about how, oh yeah, they're nothing but overrated phonies. You know, and why are they keeping their identities a secret? Vanisher gets away. He has these defense plans. And now he has just demanded $10 million tax free from the government as his price for not turning those defense plans over to the communists. So you're already blackmailing people. And it's like you have to be like, oh, yes, but I want to make sure the IRS can't then get me later. (laughs) Yes. Well, I guess that is what got Capone, right? Yeah. Just ask Geraldo Rivera. Professor X says, "Okay, we're going to go down again. And this time I'm coming with you. So the X-Men show up down in D.C. again, and there is this big confrontation on the lawn of the White House. What is it? The South Lawn, where uh, the X-Men are lining up against the Vanisher and his big army of goons. Professor X rolls up and he's like, you know, ha ha ha. What's this? 
person in a wheelchair are going to do to me? And then Professor X seems to basically lobotomize him. I mean, it's yes. kind of horrific. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's, that's really intense, dude. Wait, so, what has become of me? What am I doing here? Who is this man who faces me? Tell me, please tell me, who am I? Please do not harm me. I am weary, so weary. I must rest. I must think. I have to learn who I am, what I am. So yeah, he's been yeah. lobotomized. It's Pretty really harsh. Yeah, it super is. The henchmen then try to charge the X-Men, but of course they've got nothing on him without their super-powered backup. So the X-Men route all of the um, lackeys. Let's see. And then minutes later, after the smoke is cleared, the military folks are coming in and they're saying to Professor X in his wheelchair, you shouldn't be this close to all that action, mister. You're lucky you weren't hurt. Somebody get this man out of here. And then one of the X-Men says, hands off that wheelchair. We'll do it. Then imagine if they knew you were the leader of the X-Men, sir. It's like, didn't you kind of just give that away? Yep. I mean, <laughs> that's one of the things I don't get is like, you know, there are five X-Men and Professor X is often showing up in conjunction with them. Meanwhile, Professor X has a school where he's got five students, four men and a woman. <laughs> and yep. It's just like, yeah, you're not you're not doing this right. A pretty lame issue. Once again, we've got gangsters wearing suit suits. And yep. fedoras and Tommy guns. Yeah. This is Jack Kirby's idea of gangsters still very much stuck in the 1920s of his youth. Surely gangsters were not wearing pinstripe suit suits with Tommy guns on the lawn of the White House in 1963. But here they are. We have what's going to have this issue of how is Angel actually going to fight anybody with his <laughs> non-offensive powers. So in this case, Angel is just flying into people with his wings and just ramming his wings into people, which is something he won't do very often from now on. The one good thing that this issue gives us is uh, a lot of Kirby just playing around visually with how their powers work and how they use them and what they can do with them. That, I think, is a valuable thing to get in the future, you know, groundwork being laid for this uh, for this team. But the villain is super lame. His look I don't know if his look is lame, but it certainly has nothing to do with what he does. It just it is a nonsensical look for this character. Some of the government connection stuff with Professor X just does not jibe with the direction that they end up taking this book later. And so that's a sort of a weird, loose thread that's hanging later. We get some fun scenes of them using their powers, but really in the end, that's about it. Yeah. And it's funny that given how much how every mutant in the Marvel Universe gets so overexposed by the time you get to the 90s, man, the Vanisher just doesn't. The Vanisher (laughs) does vanished. They decided that the Cobra was keeper. I'm not sure he should have been. They decided the Melter (laughs) was a keeper. I'm not sure he should have been. But uh, the Vanisher, everybody acknowledged right away, as with the Space Phantom next issue, not a keeper. These are lame second issue villains. And yeah, he's pretty lame. But, uh, you know, I got to say, I'm really enjoying having Jean Grey be so powerful. I'm yes. enjoying seeing Jean Grey as the most powerful woman in the Marvel Universe, which, of course, she will just continue to become more and more powerful over the years until she goes too far. But uh, <laughs> I like Jean a lot. I think she's a great superhero addition to the Marvel Universe. I like all these heroes a lot. I think that this issue really isn't so bad. I think that these are good characters who it's good to continue to get to know. It's great to see Professor X get to be the badass and really play up the idea of our of this guy in this wheelchair being one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. I think that Vanisher aside, the Vanisher is kind of lame, but even then his power isn't so lame. His power is interesting. 
but he just he's just a freaky looking dude with no sort of rhyme or reason to his look. It's got nice Ryan Minniking, and I'm going to defend this issue. All right, sure. Well, as I said, I I was surprised by how much I wanted to defend Avengers number two from my previous self. Uh, I still don't think it's a great issue, but I think there are some more redeeming qualities to it than I originally thought. And I think with both of these issues, the primary thing is that the villain just utterly sucks. Yeah. But that other things about both issues uh, work decently enough. Uh, it's just that the, the villain brings them both way down. Okay, so let's go ahead and go on to Avengers number two. So, all right. you know, I we've been reading all of our comics in alphabetical order every month until we got to Avengers. And I announced when we did the comics from two months ago that we should do Avengers last every month because it always comes last, as you'll find out. I said, as we're going to find out with issue number two, which features Giant Man after he appears in Tales to Astonish. So I've always had the impression that Avengers was the last book published every month. I think it's borne out many times. So that's why we're handling the Avengers last. And sure enough, there's an arrow pointing to him that says, see the new Giant Man. Is armed with a fantastic power, the Space Phantom seeks out to destroy the Earth's mightiest heroes. We hop into our issue. We have a very bizarre first page that does show up in the No Prize book where the Hulk is much more clearly three-toed than yes. he usually is. Usually they don't really make it clear that the Hulk is three-toed, but this is very clearly a three-toed Hulk. <laughs> Four-toed Hulk, I could take a lot better than three-toed Hulk. Yes, it, just it looks really, really looks strange. Yeah. We have a meeting of the Avengers. Tim, uh, they're not the Pims yet. Uh, Hank and Jan show up and make it very clear they're taking pills now. They announce to everybody, we're taking pills. Let, <laughs> let, us, let us show you that we take pills now. We've decided, that we're, we've decided to become pill poppers. You know, anyone wants to join us. <laughs> but right away, we have Giant Man arriving tiny on ants. So not committed to the whole Giant Man bit. Still just as much Ant-Man as Giant-Man. They go ahead and have a meeting. There's always this big question of, is Jan constantly telling Hank that she's attracted to other men just to get his goat? Or does she genuinely feel that way? Is she genuinely boy crazy? Well, she thinks during the meeting, I'd like to know that adorable Thor better. Sigh. So she is genuinely boy crazy. She is someone who is genuinely into everybody, especially in this issue where she cannot control her raging hormones. (laughs) We did we did establish that she's basically like 18 or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so, uh, okay, that might be age appropriate. Well, as we'll see later, she's even crazy about Don Blake. So then we then cut to the space phantom who arrives from outer space, appropriately enough. He has been watching Earth from outer space. He knows that Tony Stark is Iron Man. He goes to Tony Stark's mansion. He has some sort of plan he's going to put in place against the Avengers. He does not realize, however, he's being watched. And so the Avengers go to confront him and the Hulk goes to confront him and he sends the Hulk to limbo and takes over his place. Years later, there would be an issue when Roger Stern was writing the Avengers. He would have a very clever issue where the Avengers were stuck in limbo and they were watching all of the people who the Space Phantom was displacing in this issue appear in limbo one by one. Hmm. And then Jan was like, I know who's going to show up last. It's going to be the Space Phantom and we're going to be able to interrogate him. I read that issue before this issue, so I knew who was going to disappear in what order. Space Phantom sends the Hulk to Limbo, takes over the Hulk, fights the Avengers, plays off their natural distrust of the Hulk, gets them to get in a big fight with each other, and him enjoys the fact that he's sowing dissension amongst the Avengers. He then runs out on the street. Rick Jones, who always has a strong sense of where the Hulk is, runs up to him and says, I've been waiting for you. You're starting to lose control. I'd better take you back to your secret lab, Hulk. And then 
space phantom thinks this human knows the Hulk. I must be careful. He must not suspect I am really the space phantom. And then in another panel. So, so actually, but before we go on, the two things I want to say about this page. One, remember I was saying that Kirby seems to be figuring out a little bit more than when that there are pipes and other things under the yes. under the street. So here we see all the pipes and stuff being rent rent. Wait, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, wrenched, uh, rent asunder. Um, rent. Maybe that, yes, rent asunder down here. The other thing, though, is what's the geography going on here with Rick Jones? being here in new york city like did he come with the hulk to new york city from he must have the desert southwest because you know in hulk what is it hulk five or hulk six uh there was the whole thing where they were just sort of like oh no let's head to dc and then it's just like oh so then five minutes later from new mexico you know here we are so yeah they, they seem to be i don't know yeah it's a little fast and loose Presumably, they traveled there together, Dr. Banner and Rick Jones traveled there together. However, I should stop myself before I say Dr. Banner, because we find out Rick Jones then in a panel that very much made it into the No Prize book. Rick Jones then says to the Hulk, not knowing he's the space phantom, he says, what are you looking at me that way for? I'm on your side, Hulk. I'm Rick Jones, the guy whose life you would save, the guy who looks after you to make sure you're able to turn back to Dr. Don Blake when you want to. Huh. So that's interesting. They usually leave stuff like that uncorrected in Marvel Unlimited, but they corrected that one here. As opposed to when Dr. Octopus called Spider-Man Superman, they left that, but they corrected this. It's interesting. That's funny. Yes. So he just complete brain fart on the part of Stan Lee. He (laughs) says that the Hulk's secret identity is Dr. Don Blake. And then Space Phantom thinks, so the Hulk has another identity. Well, you know, how many identities does he have if he's also done like space phantom goes leaping off with rick on his back rick figures out what's going on space phantom changes back to space phantom briefly then back to hulk so i gotta say just in general on this issue of avengers and certainly on last issue of avengers there's just a real sense of sloppiness the don blake error is a sense of sloppiness there's just you know even if you look at the cover the cover box of this book look at how sloppy the cover box is on this book all right, let me go back and take a look at that here. Let me see. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that look like it was done past deadline in about two seconds? Yeah. Yeah, probably so. Uh, <laughs> Just... pro- probably not by one of their main artists. It probably looks like it's Lou in, <laughs> in production over there. Everything feels like it was done at the last second and not proofread and not fact-checked. I got to say, Kirby does a good job on this this huge device that then the Hulk decides to steal, but it's referred to by Stan Lee as a short distance away, a multiple anti-missile missile gun invented by Tony Stark is about to undergo its final test. Now, you're supposed to, when you type things, then revise them and not call it an anti-missile <laughs> missile gun. How much work was he doing at this point? I mean, you know, come on. He was writing a lot of books this month, writing yeah. so many books that somehow the phrase anti-missile missile gun made it into print. So the Hulk steals this anti-missile missile gun draws the attention of the Avengers who are coming to try to stop him. He then changes into that's, I guess that's not Ant-Man or Wasp, an actual insect. He changes into an accident insect and flies away. Iron Man then be turns his, (laughs) this crazy thing on his armor. He sort of turns his arm into like a missile launcher with sort of Thor's hammer on the end. It's this strange thing. Fights the Hulk, not realizing at this point that he's fighting the actual Hulk. The teen brigade gets involved. They're calling for help. Everybody goes to help. We do see that 
Hank still has his cybernetic helmet just crammed into his much closer fitting cowl. They are fighting the space phantom who keeps switching back and forth who he's turning into. He changes into giant man. He changes into various things. They finally get to see that he is the space phantom. Finally, they send the wasp to go get Thor. And you they- see Jan come up and use a pencil to go ahead and write trouble at Stark factory need Thor because apparently they've been told to call Don Blake. If they want Thor, no reason he is. He's not important. There's no reason why you would call him, but call him. And then he's like, uh, okay, go wait outside. And she says, <laughs> we'll do doc. And then he, she thinks to herself, Hmm, he'd be real dreamy if he were a little huskier. So, uh, she is, Truly uncontrollable hormones. She goes outside. He then changes to Don Blake and says a strong commanding voice rings out into the next room as the wasp returns. Who summons the God of Thunder? I, the wasp. So surely she should be able to figure out his secret identity at this point, but not officially confirmed for many, many years. Jan then gets to be a bit of a hero. She then goes and stops Iron Man, who is secretly the space phantom. When she realizes he's fighting the team, she shrinks down into his armor and pulls it apart. And we get to this issue, which is an issue that has not really been determined yet. Can Iron Man get wet? And we get to the <laughs> the first very clear answer that no, he cannot. Thor makes it rain on Iron Man and he instantly rusts solid, which now granted this is actually the space phantom, but there was a couple issues ago in Iron Man. He threatened to drop the Crimson Dynamo in water. And he said, well, I'll, I'll put us both in water. And Crimson Time was like, but then we would both be instantly defeated by water. That implied that he has a water problem. So this is a major problem for this character if he cannot get wet. Yes. The Space Phantom says, okay, I've become everybody else. Now I'm going to become Thor. And so for the final indignity to you, I choose your body, Thor, and I sentence you now to Limbo. But Thor says, your power only affects humans. I'm the God of Thunder. So instead of sentencing Thor to Limbo, he sentences himself to Limbo. Next to be seen... Well, he will show up in later Avengers issues in the 1970s, just a few times, but we will see him directly after this appearance when the Avengers run into him in limbo in an issue that is contiguous with this issue in the 80s. So then we get to something that is sort of inevitable. The Hulk then says, I've discovered that you guys hate my guts, which is true. He has discovered that because once they were fighting him, once he was no longer the Space Phantom, it was clear they felt that way. And he says, I quit the team and I leave, which is just the beginning of the end for the Avengers, because one by one, all of the original Avengers will leave and be completely replaced by the time you get to issue 17. Stan Lee will sort of abandon his dream, or it wasn't his dream, it was Martin Goodman's dream of having the top Marvel heroes all star in a book together, because Stan Lee just doesn't play that. He's like, yeah, it wouldn't really make any sense. And that starts here with... It doesn't really make sense to have Hulk in his team. And he goes ahead and writes him out in the second issue, which is sort of shocking that uh, no status quo here. And indeed, it will take a long time for this book to establish a status quo. Um, The the Hulk was really only a member for like the last quarter of the first issue and pretty much the whole second issue. And that's it. It's like the only time he's ever been a member of the Avengers, as far as I know. Yeah. And but then becomes a major member in the MCU. Right. The Space Phantom is very lame. This is generally a pretty lame issue. It The plot doesn't really hang together. It's fun. It's always fun whenever you trick heroes into fighting each other. They do have a lot of fun with that in this book because that's what people really want to see. That's what the readers want to see is they're like, oh, who would win in a fight between this hero and this hero? That's a key question for any fan of a book. And here you get to find out who would win in a fight and you get to have a fight without actual animosity. Although, as the Hulk figures out there, actually, this does reveal some genuine animosity. 
but it's a perfectly fine book. It's it's a little silly. It's not as silly as the first issue was, which was even sillier. It does have a much lamer issue than that first issue did. Loki made for a much better villain than the Space Phantom. But this is a perfectly, well, I was going to say perfectly fine. This is a nutso issue that is entertaining <laughs> enough to read. As I said, I've revised my opinion on this somewhat. I just thought of this as just being like a really embarrassingly lame second issue for the, for the Avengers. But really, when I went through it this time, I realized pretty much all of my problems with it are the fact that the Space Phantom is super lame looking and has a super lame name. And that's yes. pretty much it. Uh, I really like, though, the way that he's fighting the characters, the way that he's like swapping each of them out. I also like the fact this actually did this introduce Limbo or we heard Limbo referred to before now. I think this introduces it here. Uh, Limbo goes on to be a location in the multiverse that goes on to be used a lot over the years. Uh, Matt and I, growing up reading Marvel comics in the early 80s, read a lot of Rom Space Knight, where he was banishing all of the dire wraiths to limbo. And I think that was just because he was clearly just massacring all these aliens. And, you know, they didn't want to have him just killing all these uh, all these uh, aliens, even if they were evil. So instead, no, I'm just sending them off to limbo. Uh, but then also there are demons who live in Limbo, like Belasco, I think, is from Limbo. And you have characters get caught in Limbo and then time travel does differently. So you can age or de-age people by passing through Limbo. There are weird versions of characters that are in Limbo. So the fact that we get this concept introduced here, this is going to pay off a lot over the years. I like the fact that they had the Hulk cut out on us, you know, just... That sort of says, yeah, okay, well, this book might come across as it was a last minute fill in and it's being rushed. And there's certainly a lot of uh, quality control issues going on. But this is not like the kind of superhero team that you would think it would be. No, it's certainly not on autopilot in terms of, you know, what's going on. This is not what you would expect. Right. Uh, now, granted, I mean, I guess they had already set this up as a precedent in Fantastic Four, how in the first several issues of Fantastic Four, you had uh, Johnny quit and you had, I think, Thing quit and, you know, various various stuff and they'd come back right the next issue. But in this case, you know, Hulk doesn't come back. And as a matter of fact, that's an ongoing plot point as we go forward that the members of the Avengers are like, no, we have to get Hulk back because we don't have enough muscle on the team. And, you know, we really need him here. And so there's lots of searching for the Hulk and, you know, trying to win back the Hulk and all sorts of stuff like that that's coming up uh, that really sort of drives the pre-Caps Kooky Quartet era of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I, I really have realized that the only things that made this book embarrassingly bad are just that the Space Phantom has a lame name and looks as utterly lame as you can imagine. And the multiple anti-missile missile gun. Oh, I'll, I'll give that a pass. I'll allow it. You'll allow the anti-missile missile gun. Yes. Okay, and calling the Hulk Don Blake. No, <laughs> I think this is certainly, we talked about it last time, how the Avengers number one was really rushed because they had to rush it out to market because Daredevil number one was late. You'll notice that Daredevil one still has not shown up two months later. And one gets feeling they're still rushing these things out the door. <laughs> they're flying by the seat of their pants here. Well, Steve, this has been an epic night of recording. This will presumably be broken up into two episodes. And that's your job. You're doing the editing. (laughs) I am. Yes, I am uh, continuing to work at my new job at Facebook and having a heck of a good time. And I'm glad you're doing the editing on this. (laughs) 
okay, everybody, that was November 1963, a terrible month in American history, but nobody knew that yet. Yeah, but this is probably published August of 1963 uh, with a cover date of November. So we were still a few months away from the shocking events of November 1963. Yep. Thanks very much. Stay safe out there, everybody. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.